Chapter 19 of The Expedition of the Donner Party and Its Tragic Fate. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Expedition of the Donner Party and Its Tragic Fate by Eliza P. Donner Houghton. Chapter 19 On a Cattle Ranch Near the Kasumni River. Name Billy, Indian Grub Feast. We left the fort and grandma's house far behind, and still rode on and on. The day was warm, the wild flowers were gone, and the plain was yellow with ripening oats which rustled noisily as we passed through, crowding and bumping their neighborly heads together. Yet it was not a lonesome way, for we passed elk, antelope, and deer feeding with pretty little fawns standing close to their mother's sides. There were also sleek fat cattle resting under the shade of live oak trees, and great birds that soared around overhead casting their shadows on the ground. As we neared the river, smaller birds of brighter colors could be heard and seen in the trees along the banks where the water flowed between, clear and cold. All these things my sister pointed out to me as we passed onward. It was almost dark before we came in sight of the adobe ranch house. We were met on the road by a pack of Indian dogs, whose fierce looks and savage yelping made me tremble until I got into the house where they could not follow. The first weeks of my stay on the ranch passed quickly. Elitha and I were together most of the time. She made my new dress and a doll, which was perfection in my eyes, though its face was crooked and its penciled hair was more like pothooks than curls. I did not see much of her husband, because in the mornings he rode away early to direct his Indian cattle herders at the rodeos, or to oversee other ranch work, and I was often asleep when he returned nights. The pinto colt he had promised me was, as Leanna had said, big enough to kick, but too small to ride, and I at once realized that my anticipated visits could not be made as planned. Occasionally, men came on horseback to stay a day or two, and before the summer was over, a young couple with a small baby moved into one part of our house. We called them Mr. and Mrs. Packwood and Baby Packwood. The mother and child were company for my sister, while the husbands talked continually of ranches, cattle, hides, and tallow, so I was free to roam around by myself. In one of my wanderings I met a sprightly little Indian lad whose face was almost as white as my own. He was clad in a blue and white shirt that reached below his knees. Several strings of beads were around his neck, and a small bow and arrow in his hand. We stopped and looked at each other, were pleased, yet shy about moving onward or speaking. I, being the larger, finally asked, "'What's your name?' To my great delight, he answered, Name, Billy. While we were slowly getting accustomed to each other, a good-natured elderly squaw passed. She wore a tattered petticoat, and buttons, pieces of shell, and beads of bird bones dangled from a string around her neck. A band of buckskin covered her forehead, and was attached to strips of rawhide, which held in place the watertight basket hanging down her back. Billy now left me for her, and I followed the two to that part of our yard where the tall ash-hopper stood, which ever after was like a story-book to me. The squaw set the basket on the ground, reached up, 
and carefully lifted from a board laid across the top of the hopper several pans of clabbered milk, which she poured into the basket. Instead of putting the pans back, she tilted them up against the hopper, squatted down in front, and with her slim forefinger scraped down the sides and bottom of each pan so that she and Billy could scoop up and convey to their mouths, by means of their three crooked fingers, all that had not gone into the basket. Then she licked her improvised spoon clean and dry, turned her back to her burden, replaced the band on her forehead, and with the help of her stick slowly raised herself to her feet and quietly walked away, Billy after her. Next day I was on watch early. My kind friend, the chore man, let me go with him when he carried the lye from the hopper to the soap fat barrel. Then he put more ashes on the hopper and set the pans of milk in place for the evening call of Billy and his companion. He pointed out the rancheria by the river where the Indian herders lived with others of their tribe, among them Billy and his mother. He also informed me that the squaws took turns in coming for the milk, and that Billy came as often as he got the chance. That he was a nice little fellow, who had learned a few English words from his white papa, who had gone off and left him. Billy and I might never have played together as we did, if my brother-in-law had not taken his wife to San Francisco, and left me in the care of Mr. and Mrs. Packwood. Their chief aim in life was to please their baby. She was a dear little thing when awake, but the house had to be kept very still while she slept, and they would raise a hand and say, Hush! as they left me, and together tiptoed to the cradle to watch her smile in her sleep. I had their assurance that they would like to let me hold her if her little bones were not so soft that I might break them. They were never unkind or cross to me, I had plenty to eat and clean clothes to wear, but they did not seem to realize how I yearned for someone to love. So I went to Mr. Choreman. He told me about the antelope that raced across the ranch before I was up, of the elk, deer, bear, and buffalo he had shot in his day, and of beaver, otter, and other animals that he had trapped along the rivers. Entranced with his tales, I became as excited as he while listening to the dangers he had escaped. One day he showed me a little chair which I declared was the cunningest thing I had ever seen. It had a high straight back, just like those in the house, only that it was smaller. The seat was made of strips of rawhide woven in and out so that it looked like patchwork squares. He let me sit on it and say how beautiful it was, before telling me that he had made it all for me. I was so delighted that I jumped up, clasped it in my arms, and looked at him in silent admiration. I do not believe that he could understand how rich and grateful I felt, although he shook his head, saying, You are not a bit happier than I was while making it for you, nor can you know how much good it does me to have you around. Gradually, Billy spent more time near the ranch house, and learned many of my kind of words, and I picked up some of his. Before long he discovered that he could climb up on the hopper, and then he helped me up. But I could not crook my fingers into as good a spoon as he did his, and he got more milk out of the pan than I. We did not think anyone saw us, yet the next time we climbed up we found two old spoons stuck in a crack, in plain sight. After we got through using them, 
I wiped them on my dress skirt and put them back. Later I met Mr. Choreman, who told me that he had put the spoons there because I was too nice a little girl to eat as Billy did, or to dip out of the same pan. I was ashamed, and promised not to do so again, nor to climb up there with him. As time passed, I watched wistfully for my sister's return, and thought a great deal about the folks at Grandma's. I tried to remember all that had happened while I was there, and felt sure they were waiting for me to pay the promised visit. A great longing often made me rush out behind a large tree near the river, where no one could see or hear me feel sorry for myself, and where I would wonder if God was taking care of the others, and did not know where I lived. I still feel the wondrous thrill, and bid my throbbing heart beat slower, when I recall the joy that tingled through every part of my being on that evening when, unexpectedly, Liana and Georgia came to the door. Yet so short-lived was that joy that the event has always seemed more like a disquieting dream than a reality, for they came at night and were gone in the morning and left me sorrowing. A few months ago I wrote to Georgia, now Mrs. Babcock, who lives in the state of Washington, for her recollections of that brief reunion, and she replied, Before we went to Sonoma with Grandma Brunner in the fall of 1847, Leanna and I paid you a visit. We reached your home at dusk. Mr. McCoon and Elitha were not there. We were so glad to meet, but our visit was too short. You and I were given a cup of bread and milk and sent to bed. Leanna ate with the grown folks, who, upon learning that we had only come to say good-bye, told her we must for your sake get away before you awoke in the morning. We arose and got started early, but had only gone a short distance when we heard your pitiful cry, begging us to take you with us. Leanna hid her face in her apron, while a man caught you and carried you back. I think she cried all the way home. It was so hard to part from you. Mr. Packwood carried me into the house, and both he and his wife felt sorry for me. My head ached, and the tears would come as often as anyone looked at me. Mrs. Packwood wet a piece of brown paper, laid it on my forehead, and bade me lie on my bed until I should feel better. I could not eat or play, and even Mr. Choreman's bright stories had lost their charm. "'Come, look! See squaw, papoose! Me go! You go!' exclaimed Billy excitedly, one soft gray morning after I had regained my spirits. I turned in the direction he pointed, and saw quite a number of squaws trudging across an open flat with babies in bicouses, and larger children scampering along at various paces, most of them carrying baskets. With Mrs. Packwood's permission, Billy and I sped away to join the line. I had never been granted such a privilege before, and had no idea what it all meant. As we approached the edge of the marsh, the squaws walked more slowly, with their eyes fixed upon the ground. Every other moment some of them would be down, digging in the earth with forefinger or a little stick, and I soon learned they were gathering bulbs about a quarter of an inch in thickness, and as large around as the smaller end of a woman's thimble. I had seen the plants growing near the pond at the fort, but now the bulbs were ripe and were being gathered for winter use. In accordance with the tribal custom, not a bulb was eaten during harvest time. They grew so far apart, and were so small, 
that it took a long while to make a fair showing in the baskets. When no more bulbs could be found, the baskets were put on the ground in groups, and the mothers carefully leaned their becouses against them in such positions that the wide-awake papooses could look out from under their shades and smile and sputter at each other in quaint Indian baby talk, and the sleeping could sleep on undisturbed. That done, the squaws built a roaring fire, and one of them untied a bundle of hardwood sticks which she had brought for the purpose, and stuck them around under the fuel in touch with the hottest parts of the burning mass. When the ends glowed like long-lasting coals, the waiting crowd snatched them from their bed and rushed into the low thicket which grew in the marsh. I followed with my firebrand, but, not knowing what to do with it, simply watched the Indians stick theirs into the bushes, sometimes high up, sometimes low down. I saw them dodge about and heard their shouts of warning and their peals of laughter. Then myriads of hornets came buzzing and swarming about. This frightened me so that I ran back to where the brown babies were cooing in safety. Empty-handed but happy, they at length returned, and though I could not understand anything they were saying, their looks and actions betokened what a good time they had had. Years later I described the scene to Elitha, who assured me that I had been highly favored by those Indians, for they had permitted me to witness their annual grub feast. The Paiutes always used burning faggots to drive hornets and other stinging insects from their nests, and they also use heat in opening the comb cells so that they can easily remove the larvae, which they eat without further preparation. With the first cold snaps of winter, my feet felt the effect of former frostbites, and I was obliged to spend most of my time within doors. Fortunately, baby Packwood had grown to be quite a frolicsome child. She was fond of me, and her bones had hardened so that there was no longer danger of my breaking them when I lifted her or held her on my lap. Her mother had also discovered that I was anxious to be helpful, pleased when given something to do, and proud when my work was praised. I was quite satisfied with my surroundings when, unexpectedly, Mr. McCoon brought my sister back and once more we had happy times together. End of chapter 19